my finances. I like success in my business. I like when my team wins. The other day we went and watched the uh, Minnesota Twins. That's my team because I grew up in Minnesota. We watched them play the Detroit Tigers and watched them win. It was exciting. It was a good game. It was 3-0 to zero, much of the game. And then about the fourth or the fifth inning, there was a, a guy that got up named Tyler Austin and he hit a home run just literally six feet above where we were at, right above where we're at. We just missed the ball by six feet. And uh, then Joe, uh, Joe got up, the catcher, he was a pinch hitter, and he hit a three-run homer, and so we won. It was, I like success, and I hope that you like, I think God's made us to like success, to learn from failure, but not love failure. That would be demented. That would be morbid. That would be, some, there's something wrong with the thinking of someone that loves failure. Uh, to learn from failure, to be helped by failure, but to like and to love success. I think families, good, healthy families, want to have a successful family, a family that that's close and a family that loves each other and a family that honors God. I, I think that's, that's normal. That's natural. I think it's natural for a businessman and anybody in the business world to want success in their business and want to be successful. Now, the Bible doesn't use the word success very often. The concept is there, blessing, God's blessing, God's favor, but the word is prosper, and in fact, the word is success. In Joshua 1, 8, and 9, the Bible says, Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. And in the verse before, it says, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that, thou, that whatsoever you do may prosper, and whatsoever you do you may have good success. I paraphrase. So the idea is, he's saying that he wants you to have success, and you have success that is rooted in and based in the Bible. I want to preach to you about the succeeding prayer. The succeeding prayer. Notice Luke chapter 18. Notice what the Bible says in verse 9. And he spake this parable unto a certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Who do you suppose that included? Anybody give me a guess? Who, who, who was it in Jesus' day that trusted that they were righteous and despised others? What group of people? Pharisees, right? The Sadducees were another. The lawyers were another. The religious people of the day, they trusted that they were righteous, that they had it together, and that they were okay. He spoke now this parable to them. You know, Jesus' teaching is always accurate. Jesus' teaching is always pointed. Jesus' teaching was always relevant to the exact situation. And two men, verse number 10, says two men went up into the temple to pray. Now, this is a parable, so it's, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. The one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee. Well, the first part of his prayer looks good, don't you agree? You ought to be thanking the Lord, and you ought to be addressing the Lord properly. God, I thank thee. But that's about the only part of his prayer that was any good. That I am not as other men are. Extortioners. Those would be thieves. Unjust. Adulterers. Or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Let's notice some facts about his prayer. His prayer was comparing. It was a comparing prayer or comparative. 
His prayer was comparing himself with others. Do the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, they that compare themselves amongst themselves are not wise. Self-comparison, comparison with others is not wise. It's rooted in insecurity. It's rooted in falsehood. And it will lead to a, it will lead to a fallacious conclusion. Comparison. Comparison. I'm comparing others. Some of you ladies compare yourself with the other ladies you see on Facebook and you think they've got it all together and I just don't have it together. Do you know that whenever they post something on social media, they put it through five filters on their phone to see which one is right. They make sure that all that which is undesirable is out of the picture before they take the picture. Don't compare yourself with the other folks on Facebook or social media or Instagram. That's silly. Sometimes people, hey, long before there was ever social media, there was comparison. We compare ourselves horizontally and we do to our own detriment. You know, the problem was he was talking to the high God of heaven, the holy God who knows everything from start to finish, and he was comparing himself horizontally. He should have been comparing himself vertically, but he didn't. He thought he was good because he was comparing himself with the extortioner, the guy in jail for extortion and thievery and deception and fraud. He was comparing himself with the unjust those that didn't understand the truth and didn't live their life based upon the truth. He was comparing himself with the adulterers, those that had violated their marriage vows. And he went so far as to publicly compare himself with this publican. Notice again verse, 12, verse number 11. He said, or even as this publican. It was comparative. His prayer was comparative and comparing himself with the wrong thing. Uh, someone says, well, preacher, I'm okay. I, I mean, I'm not that bad of a person. I, I think I'll make it into heaven. And do you know what they're thinking usually? I'm not as bad as the next guy. I'm not as bad as the guy in jail for rape. I'm not as bad as the terrorist. I'm not as bad as the guy that I work with who shows up late and goes home early and is lazy on the job. I'm not as bad as the next guy. Now, that's kind of like me. My wife's trying to get me to lose a little weight, and I'm trying myself. But you know, the other day I saw a TV program that uh, had a guy that was 700 pounds. Now, I have to say... Compared to him, I'm not so bad. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty good, actually, compared to him. And that's the way we do with our thinking as far as our standing before God. We say, well, compared to so-and-so, compared to this person, we, we may not verbalize it, although we may. But we, we, we think in our minds, oh, I'm not bad compared to such-and-such. But you know, they're not going to be the one who's the standard on judgment day. You're going to be compared to the one with nail prints in his hand. You're going to be compared to Jesus Christ. How good are you compared to him? You say, preacher, I'm not good at all. Well, that's what you need to come to before you go off uh, on a cockeyed prayer saying, oh God, I thank thee and then thank him for all these foolish things that you shouldn't even be opening your mouth about before you go off to God and say, well, God, I don't need salvation because I'm better than so-and-so, even this publican. You, you need to compare yourself vertically with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, except your righteousness shall exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, he shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. His prayer was comparative. Notice verse number 12. He said, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. His prayer was conceited. It was based upon himself. 
Now, some years back, I was preaching in Virginia, not Brother Warnick's church, but I was preaching in Virginia in the last part of the week. Uh, we had testimonies. Now, testimonies, I think, generally are good. Uh, I don't look at them in a bad way. Somebody coming from a camp perspective can understand sometimes testimonies can be fraught with some problems. And honestly, I don't think anybody was expecting it. But a lady stood up and she said, I'm so thankful that my husband has me as his wife. <laughs> and we all kind of did a double take. Like we, she didn't just say this, but she just said it. And she went on about it and elaborated about it. He is so blessed to have me as his wife. Now, I know that's what some of you ladies are thinking. And uh, surely it is the case that your husband, my, my, I am blessed to have my wife. But my wife wouldn't say, I'm just thankful that my husband has me as his wife. Isn't that interesting? Now, watch here. It was egotistical. His prayer was egotistical. He said, I fast twice in the week. Look at all that I do. Coming before the Lord God of heaven, who knows the end from the beginning, saying, Lord, look at all that I do. His prayer was conceited. Now, anybody that knows the Bible doesn't need to know much about the Bible to know God does not accept pride. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. The first listed is a proud look. God didn't even say a proud word. He could have, but he didn't say a proud act. He said a proud look. These six things doth the Lord hate, a proud look. What does a proud look look like? <laughs> or. Or. <laughs> God hates a proud look. Can you imagine what he thinks about a proud act? Or a proud word? The very thing that boiled up jealousy and rage in the heart of Lucifer and got him cast out of heaven was pride. The very thing that stirred in Judas's heart to betray the Savior was pride. The very thing that must be confessed and forsaken of first if we're going to have revival is pride. And instead of looking at, pride doesn't look at everybody else's life and shows the pride in theirs. Pride looks within. Pride does a true look in the mirror. Now I've found those that are the most proud are the first ones to see pride in those that are proud. Humility is the exact opposite. And he says here in this passage, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But watch, his prayer was, it was comparative. It was conceited. Number three, it was corrupt. It wouldn't get the job done. It wouldn't get him to heaven. It wouldn't gain favor with God. It was corrupt. Jesus said, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. What righteousness does that? Fast twice a week. Did you fast twice this week? Do you give tithes of all that you possess, the mint and the anise and the cumin like the Pharisees? They did. But it wasn't satisfying to God. You must have a righteousness that exceeds that. What's that? That's the righteousness of Christ. A righteousness that is not your own. A righteousness that you cannot earn or uh, purchase or attain, but that you receive, that you accept. Mm -hmm. Have you accepted that righteousness that is through the grace of God? 
Have you been born again? Do you know that you're saved? If not, today is the day that you ought to turn from your sin and your conceitedness and your comparativeness and your corruption and trust in the Lord. I want you to notice there were two men, these two different men. One was a Pharisee, the other publican. They could not be in a culture more polar opposite. This would be like today, this would be like uh, a preacher and a politician. Could not be more polar opposite. I mean, we're talking about uh, uh, the politician was high, he was mighty. This was, this was a politician that thought a lot of himself but was corrupt. Who was a publican in the Bible? Zacchaeus was a publican. He was a tax collector. And he was hated by the world and by the culture. The Pharisee, they were a part of the elite SEAL Team 6 of religion. Whether they were headed to heaven or not didn't matter. They made a good show of it all. People were impressed when they came by. They were the standard. Everybody looked to them. Two people. Then there were two prayers. And the one prayer was corrupt. It was conceited. It was comparative. Let's look at the other prayer. Verse number 13. The publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven. He wouldn't even look to heaven? Now, sometimes we get back to the rudimentary things when we explain to our children what we do and why we do it. Sometimes our children want to know why we fold our hands, why we bow our heads when we pray. Here's one reason why we bow our heads when we pray. Because it's a sign of humility. doesn't mean you can't pray looking up to the Lord, not at all. But the idea is it's a heart posture, a posture of humility. He would not so much as lift up his eyes unto heaven. Notice his prayer was low. The Bible says, with the lowly is wisdom. The scripture says that the high and lofty one inhabits its eternity whose name is holy. I dwell with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the heart of the contrite one, to revive the spirit of the humble. The Bible says the Lord is with the lowly. His prayer was low. I want you to notice, too, it was loathing. It said, he smote upon his breast... Why? Because he knew, he knew there was something wrong. He knew that he was in deep trouble with God. He knew that it was, it was his, it was a privilege if God would ever hear him. He didn't deserve to be here. He didn't deserve to pray. He didn't deserve to be heard. His prayer was loathing. He says in verse number 13, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. His prayer was last. The Bible says the first shall be last. The last shall be first. It's not an accident that his prayer was last. He waited until the Pharisee had said his peace. He knew he didn't deserve to be here in the temple. His prayer was little. This is all he said. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Seven words, right? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The others took up two verses just about. It was little. Sometimes we think that God will hear us if we talk more. God's not interested in the length of our prayer. He's not interested in us talking a lot. The, the prayer that brought about a Welsh revival was, Oh God, bend us. Oh God, bend us. Oh God, bend me. It was a little prayer. 
It was the heart that mattered. It was the heart of contrition. It was the heart of humility. It was the heart of unworthiness. That's what God is pleased with. We spoke in Sunday school about you want to get the attention of God, then sin. You'll get God's attention. But you want to get the attention of God? Humble your heart. You'll get his favorable attention. You'll get his unfavorable attention if you sin. You'll get his favorable attention if you humble your heart before the Lord. And that's what he's saying. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't deserve it. I'm crying out for mercy. And God hears the cry for mercy. God's a God of mercy. The scripture says he's rich in mercy. He's got more mercy than all the world and money and all the banks in the world have money. He's, he's rich in mercy. He wants to give mercy. He delights in mercy. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. God wants to forgive our sin. He wants to wash it away. He wants to cleanse us. He wants to bury our sin in the depths of the sea. He's not sitting up in heaven with a baseball bat ready to clobber us like the kid at the, at the Chuck E. Cheese at the, the game with a little, little hit. Come on, come on. That's not our God. Our God is sitting up in heaven ready to dispense mercy. In fact, you just need to read the book of Jonah to define that and to uncover it. Jonah wants God to zap Nineveh. And God says, there are over six score, 120,000. Six score thousand people that can't discern between their right hand and their left. Don't you think I should show mercy? Ah, where do we get our little platform? Where did we get our little pedestal? And how did we get up there in the first place where we can look down on the people around us and want God to bring judgment? That's not a godly attitude. Jonah was sitting up on his little pedestal under his little gourd that only lasted for a day, wanting God to zap Nineveh. And God said, there are 120,000 that can't, they're children. They can't, they don't know their right hand from their left. Is there anybody that cares about them? Uh, Two days ago, Chicago, there are 2.5. 7 million people in Chicago. I probably at least 120,000 in that city that can't discern between their right hand and their left. When, when are we going to get right with God? Can I, can I just bear my heart to you right now? When are we going to get right with God and quit playing games and really get humble before the Lord so that we, where we're at, can be effective in reaching places like Chicago? 2.7 million people. Cleveland. How many people are in Cleveland? How many people are in Columbus? How many people are in Cincinnati? How many people in Dayton? How many people in Indianapolis? 820,000 to be exact. How many people in, in the northwestern part of the state? How many people in Louisville or Lexington? How many people in Pittsburgh? How about Philadelphia? Who cares whether they die and go to hell? Who gives a rip? Let them all burn. Is that our attitude? Are we so self-righteous and so filled with ourselves that we can't even bring ourselves to humble ourselves and get right with God? So we would actually have a, a platform on our knees to be able to impact these areas? Who cares if they burn forever? Who cares if the whole lot of them die and go to hell? 
You can criticize Chicago politics all day long. You can mark the murder rate all day long. You can highlight the fact that there are bad politics and corrupt politicians all day long. You can note the traffic if you want to, but this is a city teeming with people for whom God loves, for whom Christ died, that God loves. And somebody needs to reach him. We say, preacher, stop. I'm way over here in Minster. What am I going to do? Well, if you'd get right with God and get down on your knees, you'd be surprised what you can do. And the only way to get right with God and get down on your knees is like this publican because he came before the Lord and he wouldn't even lift up his eyes. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But boy, his prayer was loud. I'm not saying it was loud in volume right now, but we're still hearing it all the way over here in Minster, Ohio. And it was long. We're still, we're still hearing it. It was far reaching, long reaching. All the way over here, thousands of miles. We're still hearing the prayer of the publican. And look at what the Bible says in verse number 14. It says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Two people, the Pharisee and the publican. Two prayers, one that to one that was filled with pride and one that was filled with humility. And two products. The publican never did get it. I mean, the Pharisee never did get it. The publican, he got it. What did he get? Justification. The answer that he was looking for. Now I wonder who's going to be in which category today. You're going to leave falling into the Pharisees category. I'm good. I don't need God. I mean, I got it. I mean, God got everything. I'm not like this man. Not like this. Certainly not like my neighbor next door. Are you going to come before the Lord and say, Lord, I don't deserve anything. I certainly don't deserve mercy. But if you'd show me mercy, I sure appreciate it. I'd sure thank you for it. I'd sure benefit and others would as well. Do you want to know the succeeding prayer? It was the succeeding prayer, the last one. I wonder if there'll be succeeding prayers here today. Let's bow with our heads bowed and eyes closed.